I wanted to start, so this, this section of the text is really interesting in that we, we see really honestly for the first time the 12 disciples called to mission in a real way. Beyond follow Jesus and Jesus will be the active agent in everything, it is now you go out. And I have a little bit of experience in something like this. My wife and I were involved in Campus Crusade when we were at college together. And Campus Crusade, organization founded by Bill Bright, and the whole purpose of it is evangelism on college campuses. That's why it exists. So whenever you show up and you say, hi, I'd like to uh, participate, they say, are you Christian? And you say, yes. And you say, do you have a Bible? And and if you say yes, they say, great, we're going to give you like an hour training, and then you're going to go out and you're going to talk to people about uh, Jesus and what he's done for you. And that's really it. That's kind of the the expectation of of anybody involved in this organization. You go out on a campus, usually in pairs of two, and they kind of have some preset activities for you, one of which would be what we always did called freshman survival kits, which was where you have like a, you have a laundry bag and you fill it with ramen and a book and a Bible, and then you just hand it out to a lot of people and you get their information. And another one that was, is far more uh, of, a, of a bait and switch technique, and Crusade would admit to this, so I'm not, I'm not putting words in their mouth, but you go out and you do surveys on campus. And what that means is that they give you a little piece of paper that's probably got like four questions on it or something, and you go out with another person and you go to some place like the Commons or a cafeteria, some place where there are a lot of students, and you find a student who doesn't look particularly busy, and you say, hey, would you like to take a survey? And they say, yeah, I guess. And you sit down with each other, and and then you start asking them the questions. And they're usually themed around something like seasonal, something that would be going on. And I kid you not, this is usually the progression of the questions. Uh, hey, thanks for, uh, for taking time to talk with us. First question, it's uh, almost Halloween. What's your favorite candy? And they'll say, I don't know, like Reese's, I guess. And you write that down. And you say, okay, also Halloween. Do you ever watch scary movies? Do you have a favorite scary movie? And they'll tell you their favorite scary movie. And you'll go, really? And then the third question is like, you kind of go, okay. And here's question number three. It says, uh, uh, if you were to die tonight, how sure are you that you would go to heaven? (laughs) It's natural flow from question two, I think. And... It's awkward, and it's, it's a little corny, but all that said, it gets you right to that place of you're either going to be talking about spiritual things or they're going to leave. You know, like that's, that's kind of where you go. And you hopefully are able to take that. They'll give you an answer. Usually they will. They'll give you a sincere answer. And you expand that, hopefully, into something about Jesus and what he's done for you and how you can have assurance that if Christ has covered you, uh, that you could go to heaven. So... Um, as corny as it can be, uh, it became impressed on everyone that to step out in a small act of faith like that was usually a very quick way to have God meet you and do something um, to show that he is there with you. It was so often true that you'd take someone who, thought, who was mortified by this. I didn't like this, just so you know. It was not something that like, I, I got all jazzed up to do, but... You'd take somebody that was terrified of it, you'd put them down, they'd, they'd do the simple, small act of obedience where they'd say, I guess I'll do it, I'll try. And almost every time, the, the leader of the ministry at A&M, he would always say, like, there's a great chance that that person is gonna see someone come to know the Lord when they talk to them about it. For whatever reason, God just likes to reward small acts of faith that way. And it was so true. And I would look at people and I would say, 
that person can barely string two sentences together. Every time they go out, somebody says, I want to know the Lord. And, uh, and I would try and, you know, I would try and winsome their way to the Lord. And that's not how it works because you can't change a heart. You can help convince someone through an argument, but you can't change a dead heart into a live heart through an argument. It takes the spirit of God. And what you'll see here is when the disciples go out, the 12 go out, they are going out in such a way that their ministry could only be affirmed and completed by the power of God. You're going to see that there is, when we do that, when we step out in faith like that, there is going to be an opposition that comes up to us. And then also you're going to see that the only way to overcome that opposition, opposition is through God's provision. So all of those things are what work together so that we can actually have fruitful ministry and trust the Lord. So let's start with a prayer and then we will dig in. Well, Lord, we ask you to be here in this room with us now as we go through your word. May it be handled rightly, may it be true. May we see how quick you are to come alongside us when we step out in faith, how patient you are with even our imperfect obedience. And may we see that because of your compassion when you look out and you see people lost, you are quick to save and quick to provide. I pray, Lord, that you would be present. We ask all this in Christ's name, amen. So, at the start of the passage, we have summoning the 12. He gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. Then he sent them to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Take nothing for the road, he told them. No staff, no traveling bag, no bread, no money. Don't take an extra shirt. Whatever house you enter, stay there and leave from there. If they do not welcome you, when you leave that town, shake the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and traveled from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing everywhere. So the first section of our passage today has Jesus summoning the 12 disciples, and you actually see the 12 written out in scripture, to begin joining him in his job of preaching the good news to the world, to imitate him in the faith that he has shown in God the Father. And they are 12 ordinary men whose so far, uh, they, they're in their particular narrative, they have not done much. They are now being asked to step up and imitate the ministry of the Son of God, uh, which is including but not limited to his miraculous healings. And we kind of have, I think, when we approach this part of the text, we have to detach a little bit of what our sort of cultural memory is of Jesus and the disciples. You know, we can picture, most of us, I think, the Last Supper. We know that Jesus and his, quote, disciples are always together and they get mentioned. But as far as Luke's gospel is concerned, apart from a mention here and a mention there, the disciples have not done anything worth noting yet. The, the gospel has been primarily about Christ's coming, John the Baptist preceding him, and Christ's miracles so far. The disciples were called in chapter six, but it's really just, it's kind of like a, 
a preceding thing. Like, hey, these guys are gonna come up, but just so you know, this was when he called the 12 disciples. And then even when we have the kind of the winds and the waves miracle in the boat, this is just a little bit of a, a thing. A lot of the time when you see the disciples in scripture, it might be including, but is not limited to the 12 disciples. Because disciple, student, is just all the people that are following Jesus at this time. And often that's the 12, certainly it is, but then it's also, it's the other men and the other women. We know that there's another group of 70 that was particularly close to him. And even when we see disciples in other places earlier in the gospel, it's not necessarily clear that it's talking about Jesus and his 12 disciples. But here, Jesus calls, you saw a capital letter, the 12. So far, they've been unimpressive. Uh, they call him master, and that's really more of a term of student to teacher. It's, it's not granting many kind of supernatural authority. It's just, it's just a learning kind of authority. Um, it's just kind of being respectful. Uh, we know that they, uh, even when they have kind of a fuller impression of Jesus, which Peter is about to make kind of a, he's gonna confess Jesus as the Messiah in the next text that's gonna get preached on next week. And even that, although it's closer, does not fully, they don't have a full embodiment of, of what and who Jesus is. Because when Jesus, you know, tells them, well, he has to die, and be resurrected, they say, no, you don't. To trust us, you don't really have to do that. Um, when they don't know what, what the Messiah, what the Son of Man coming, when he's gonna come, when he's gonna reign, they're kind of in the dark on all of that. So they're, again, they're novices. And they've seen Jesus, you know, calm the wind and the waves. They've seen him drive out demons. They've seen him inadvertently heal a woman with his clothes. They've seen him bring a dead daughter back to life. But their current only qualifications for ministry have been that they have been witnesses to these events. And now Jesus has summoned them to himself and with no apparent sense of irony, he says, you go and proclaim the kingdom of God and heal the sick. Which is, in my eyes, talk about an undeserved promotion. And then, as if he wants to make the task more difficult, he affords them very little in the ways of provision. Rather than give them a handbook, he told them they're to take no staff, no bag, probably for money, no food, no extra clothes besides what they have on their backs, no cell phones, they can't even fill up their tank if they don't know where the next gas station is. They just have to go in a direction. I think most of us, me included, if we left right now and left everything in our seats, no cell phones, no wallet, and just went out, one, we'd uh, have a very, very near and soon understanding of dependence upon the Lord because we have lost so many of the things that we have grown to be dependent on. Two, I don't even know how we know to return because I don't know how you tell a day passes without a cell phone. I think it has something to do with the sun. But after three days, we'll come back and we'll talk about what we experienced. All right, not right now. Our expectation, if we were kind of lined up in the same way, we might think that we would get a little bit more of an orientation or a practice session. 
The disciples, at this point, they've agreed to the prospect of being fishers of men, but they really probably didn't think that the hands-on element of that would escalate this quickly. So there are a few characteristics on how Jesus sends the 12 into these towns and villages that we can look over. And some of them are from uh, Luke's account here, and then we can actually pull a few from some of the other gospel accounts. So obviously they're, they're to travel very light. They're only to stay in one home in the villages that they go to, which is contrary probably to the practice of like the uh, itinerant preachers and philosophers who would go from house to house and, and also collect money from house to house. Uh, if the message was not received, they were to shake the dust off their feet as a symbol of uncleanness. And then from some of the other gospels, uh, Matthew tells us this mission is actually particularly geared to Jewish towns and villages. Matthew says, Jesus sent out these 12 after giving them instructions, don't take the road that leads to the Gentiles and don't enter any Samaritan town. Instead, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And we'll talk a little bit later about, about why and what that means. They're not to acquire money in the course of the trip itself. Uh, again, that might be sort of a repudiation of traveling philosophers that would make that practice, but it's also, it seems kind of interesting because even if they've just been effective ministers and someone says, hey, I'd like to give you money just as a thanks for being here, they're to say no. And then last, they are not only expected to proclaim the good news of the coming kingdom, but to heal the sick and to drive out demons and to raise the dead, Mark 6 tells us. And in all of these things, the task at hand is to go into the world the same way that Jesus did, with the same power and authority because he has given it to them. And they're going to go into the world with what I would call sort of a biblical unpreparedness they are ready only to receive the provision that the Lord provides them. And in one way, uh, Jesus is kind of sending them out with nothing to protect themselves, nothing to hoard off any kind of, you know, malicious intent. In another way, though, he's sending them out with nothing to lose because the protection and the effort and the faith and the results belong to the Lord and to him alone. And incidentally, whether we travel light or we travel overburdened, uh, the reality for us is the same. Nothing external that we have is necessary to serve the Lord. The only thing that is necessary to serve the Lord faithfully is the same ingredient for us now as it was for them then, which is a faithful willingness to listen to him. And then he will deliver on that faith. And there will be difficulty and oppression, though, which Jesus is not ignorant of, and he brings it uh, to our attention in this next point where our story sort of takes a shift to Herod. So we kind of, we pull out of where the disciples are now and we hear this little narrative. Herod, the Tetrarch, heard about everything that was going on. He was perplexed because some said that John had been raised from the dead some said that Elijah had appeared, and others that one of the ancient prophets had risen. I beheaded John, Herod said, but who is this I hear such things about? And he wanted to see him. What that means for us right now is that Christ's ministry is beginning to reverberate a little bit in the halls of power of the day. Herod is the Tetrarch over Galilee, 
which means he is kind of assigned there to rule over it, still subservient to the Roman Empire, but he, it was his responsibility. And uh, in Luke's gospel, this is actually our, our first time kind of hearing about him since we knew he had imprisoned John the Baptist, and this is also our, our time learning that John the Baptist has been beheaded. It's just sort of mentioned in passing, but the last time we heard John the Baptist was just in prison. And what's happening in Herod's palace? Rumors are spreading. Jesus is no longer a backwoods preacher causing ripples in smaller rural towns and areas. He's actually causing larger effects, more and more noticeable effects that are being known and even rumored by the general public. People are asking, who is this guy? What is he doing? It's funny that this is even in response to the fact that Jesus often tells the people that he works miracles on to be quiet and not tell anybody. It, the, the, the response is still growing. It's also likely that Herod is provoked, especially because this is the first time that Jesus is not just going around himself and proclaiming the kingdom, healing, you know, doing miracles for people, but he is now sending his own emissaries out into the regions that Herod is responsible for. So this almost, in Herod's mind, although this is kind of like the wicked flee when no one pursues sort of thing, in Herod's mind, this is almost an insurrection. Jesus is now, there's real structure to this movement that he would love to put down. One thing that's interesting, though, despite Herod's you know, sort of growing suspicion and what he thinks about Jesus, what he has wrong about Jesus, in the work of gospel ministry, when you are faithfully serving the Lord, uh, it can and will lead to misinterpretations about you and your character that are based off of nothing more than rumors and guesswork. And that can be, I think, really frightening. I say it for myself because I want, for me, character and reputation to be something that you just follow the same ingredients and you will always get good results, right? If I do these things, if I speak in this way, if I show this level of, you know, temperance, then, you know, reputation will grow, you'll be held in high regard, you'll be thought rightly of. It wasn't true for Jesus. And it's not true for us either. All of those things are things you can control but the sin in my heart that wants to elevate me to a different place where I am and the sin in other people's hearts that wants to look at somebody and say, I'm gonna form my own opinions about that. That is what is always going to kind of ripple and affect into that. So that happens in any gospel ministry. George Mueller, uh, who Lawson is not the only one that gets to quote from George Mueller. I stake my flag in this one. Uh, he, is made, he was famous for his life of dependence, right? So he kind of depended on the Lord for provision. That was his goal. So he opened all these orphan care houses, daycare houses, and he particularly set himself up and operated so that the Lord would have to provide his needs, right? So even, even if he had a need and he knew that if he vocalized it to some kind you know, benefactor that they would fill it, he wouldn't. He would just pray and trust the Lord to make up the difference. So even, which is just 
kind of like a radical way to even think about it, right? Because we, we just think, you know, if I can just will it, if I can make it done myself, and I'm just gonna do it myself. George Mueller actually, no, he said, I'm, I'm only going to, I want my life, my ministry to show that it would only succeed because of what the Lord has done. So he lived intentionally unencumbered. But what he said in one of his biographies is actually that the greater difficulty that he faced was not that he had to ever wait for the Lord to provide. What he actually said was, when in connection with the orphan houses, day schools, etc., trials have come upon me which were far heavier than the want of means when lying reports were spread that the orphans had not enough to eat or that they were cruelly treated in other respects. Can you imagine your frustration if that was you in your ministry? Where you had already sacrificed all your comfort, all of your wealth, all of your dependence, only to try and make your life a testimony of how the Lord has provided for you, and then you are repaid with the fact that people are saying, you know what, I bet he's not even taking care of those orphans. I know he opened five orphan houses just for the needs of taking care of them, and the Lord's provided all of his needs, but I bet there's neglect there. So we're just gonna spread those rumors around. I can imagine he was frustrated that even that that was his trial. His trial was not that the Lord would ever deliver him from anything that he needed. He trusted that he would. His trial was that the world does what the world does and gets in your way. Jesus is not ignorant to this either. No, and we learn in Matthew's gospel, he actually elaborates. Before he sends the disciples out, this is what he says. He says, look, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as serpents and as innocent as doves. Beware of them, because they will hand you over to local courts and flog you in their synagogues. You will even be brought before governors and kings because of me to bear witness to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, don't worry about how or what you are to speak, for you will be given what to say at that hour, because it isn't you speaking, but the spirit of your father is speaking through you. Brother will betray brother to death and a father to his child. Children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of my name. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to another. For truly I tell you, you will not have gone through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher or a slave above his master. It is enough for a disciple to become like his teacher and a slave like his master. If they called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household? So if you're keeping score, uh, not only are the disciples inexperienced and not only are they ill-provisioned and not only is the task before them a large one that risks great rejection, but there's going to be an active oppression to their mission because wolves and foxes like Herod will seek to disrupt them and their work because they are of the world while the disciples are not. And God's purposes and the world's purposes are at odds with each other fundamentally. James tells us, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. 
so against such the, this kind of stacked deck that these disciples, remember, these inexperienced guys, they have not done this before, and now they're being called to something pretty scary, pretty big, and now they also will have people that will be actively against them. What hope do they have? What chance do they have? On their own, I think no chance at all. But given that this is God's purpose and not theirs, their success is certain. Brings us to our third point, which is heavenly provision. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus all that they had done. He took them along and withdrew privately to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds found out, they followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Late in the day, the twelve approached and said to him, send the crowd away so that they can go into the surrounding villages and the countryside to find food and lodging because we are in a deserted place here. You give them something to eat, he told them. We have no more than five loaves and two fish, they said, unless we go and buy food for all these people, for about 5,000 men were there. Then he told his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. They did what he said and had them all sit down. Then he took the five loaves and two fish and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke them, kept giving them to his disciples to set before the crowd. Everyone ate and was filled. And then they picked up 12 baskets of leftover pieces. So, from the very start of this little section, we learn miraculously the disciples, now called apostles, apostolos, which is someone who is sent, so they're no longer just students of Christ, they've actually gone out into the world bearing his message. They returned successfully from their mission. Whatever, whatever Christ asked them to do, drive out demons, heal people, heal the sick, they actually come back and report, we did it. We actually did the things that you said us to do. They probably are, I'm gonna guess that they're walking on some kind of, you know, a little bit of a spiritual high right now, or they're saying, I think, you know, I'm actually, almost, I'm almost as cool as this guy. And uh, Mark says they drove out many demons. They healed many sick people and anointed them with oil. And despite their lack of faith and the forces that work against them, they came back triumphantly. Jesus sees that as a good time for a lesson in humility, which is so true for us. So like good middle managers, the disciples have a newfound agency and they come to Jesus with both a problem and a solution. This large crowd has followed us while we have come to rest. It's very likely the large crowd is there in part because of the disciples, right? Because they've been around all the towns now. They've been kind of actually drumming up attention. So now the crowd is following. Jesus' fame is growing even more. And they see kind of the impending problem of a small humanitarian crisis, and they urge Jesus to go with the prudent, practical choice of sending them away to find lodging and food in all of the local towns. Jesus, though, felt compassion for the crowd instead. And so he scorned the prudent and the practical choice and instead decided for a supernatural display of mercy and power. The catch, though, and the way he turns it around is he looks at his disciples and he says, you feed them. 
And this story, the feeding of the 5,000, you've probably heard it. If you grew up in the church, I'm sure you've heard it. If you were from outside the church, you've probably heard it still then too. It's a pretty well-known story of Christ's, you know, uh, miracles. And up to this point, Jesus has had kind of this, this pattern of healing, having compassion, healing more. Uh, as his name, though, is growing, his miracles are getting bigger and bolder. He's having fewer and far demands for secrecy for what he has done. And you've probably, you might have heard, too, this text actually only tells us that there are 5,000 men in the crowd. There are also very likely women and children in the crowd. So what that total number is could be double it, could be triple it. We don't know. 5,000, 10,000, 15,000, bit of a guess. And looking at this massive number, put yourself in the disciples' place, Jesus looks at them and says, you feed them. Excuse me? You want us to feed them? They answer, they answer them by bringing up practical issues. Uh, Jesus, we only have this much food. Mark's gospel says they even say it would take 200 denarii, seven months' wages, to buy enough food to feed the crowd. So their responses to him are, we don't have the food, we don't have the money, like, we can't do it. I'm sorry, we don't have the resources. And I think it seems silly now that we know what Jesus has done and who he is to imagine the disciples telling Jesus Christ to his face that he has a bad idea because he didn't consider all the details. I think you don't get it, Jesus. Have you checked our food stores lately? There are five loaves. That's all we got. I'm keeping the fish for myself. Typical leader type. He doesn't even know how hard it is to do what he's asking. Here's the trick, though, to walking on mission with the Lord, which the disciples are still learning, which we are still learning. When you set your mind and your hand to the task that God wants to accomplish, then the task will be completed. No matter how seemingly large or unassailable or daunting the task, the God of all resources will deliver the results that he is seeking. In fact, if we want a real test for where and how the Lord provides, We just need to ask ourselves the question, can I do this in my own strength? Is it possible for me to do this in my own strength? If you can, there's no way way to necessarily know that the Lord is working in that act or that you're just completing it because you're able to do things. Me saying I'm going to walk in my own strength or that I'm going to walk in the Lord's strength doesn't really give him a lot of glory because I've been walking for a long time. We talk about it up here for, on you know, Sundays, you know when I'm not here, when I'm over there, more well-hidden, but louder. Um, when, we all, when we are on this stage together as musicians, it, worship, proper worship, proper heart worship, proper singing is never facilitated only by talent on the stage. And there's plenty of talented musicians at Redeemer, but it is a work of the Lord to cause our hearts to worship when we sing songs. It is a work of the Lord that we actually think new and truer things about him while we are praising him. That's that's him. Anybody can get a bunch of good musicians together and play a song. 
The world does it all the time. And there's plenty of great music, but is there music that turns your heart to look to Jesus and understand him better and what he's done for you? It takes the strength of the Lord to do that, not just our own talents. What's funny, though, is the disciples just finished this missionary training exercise, right? So they went out, they went out in the countryside, they went to these towns, they went to these villages. Do you think that they can heal the sick by themselves? Like it's a practice? Like you can learn how to heal the sick the same way you can learn how to like shoot a free throw? Do you think it's like being a Jedi? That you just need, you just need enough time of like intense mental training, physical exercise, and then all of a sudden, because you've got the movements right, you know how to cast out a demon? Is that how it works? It only worked before because God gave them authority and power to do it. It didn't work because they had, some, they, they had mastered the steps to it. Either God gives you that power and authority like he did with the 12 or he doesn't. The same God that told, that told them, go cast out these demons, is now telling them, feed these people. And somehow in their mind, they have a disconnect that he's able to cast out demons, he's able to raise people from the dead, but I don't trust his ability to provide food. I don't know if he can do it. That might be too hard of a task. How can we make this work practically is their answer to Jesus' question, or can we not? The God of supernatural strength has asked me to do something. I'm gonna answer him with very natural resource questions saying, I don't know how it can be done. How can we make this work practically is not the right question. Though they don't know it yet, they are in apprenticeship to the living God, Jesus Christ, the Ancient of Days, and the only question is, how, Lord, are you going to provide this time? When you understand that the strength isn't ours, then it doesn't matter if it's 5,000 people or 10,000 people or 100,000 people. It's because it's not about how we're going to accomplish it. The, only, the question we need to ask ourselves is, do you think the task is too large for God to accomplish if he seeks to accomplish it? Do you think God is going to look at it and say, whew, 5,000 people. I'm gonna to have to really miracle hard on this one. Small caveat, this is, this is just a minor proviso here. Uh, determining the will of the Lord and, and uh, how he seeks to use you is probably like another sermon or 10, what God has called you to do. So we're not to go through the world, and no one at Redeemer would tell you this, we're not going through the world with some sort of silly name it and claim it, God is my genie, God is my vending machine. I just have to, if I, I can go do whatever I want, I can run that marathon tomorrow as long as I wear my I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me shirt, then I will be fine. That's not, that's not how it works. When God is treated like a, a token like that, like a trinket, he usually actually makes his display of power by not showing up, so let's not go that way. Determining what the Lord's will for you is usually something that kind of comes about through a lot of prayer, a lot of meditation, a lot of counsel with other wise believers. Uh, but in this case, it's actually really easy for the disciples because Jesus literally says, go feed them. So the task is pretty concrete. They understand what God is asking them to do. But they still can't do it. 
and they still go back to Jesus. And what does Jesus do? How does he accomplish it? He lifted his eyes to heaven, he offered a blessing, and then he had the disciples distribute the meal. And when they had given food out to everyone, and everyone was full, you know what? They had more food than when they started. 12 baskets full. Through his blessing, the Lord left them better off than when they began. And I like to imagine, I like to picture the coming days, maybe weeks, where the disciples were still eating the residual miracle of Christ that they still had stored. Jesus is paying out his dividends on a small faith investment. And we can't pick on the disciples too much, right? Because we have the same propensity for unbelief that they do. When tasks and burdens are too large for us, when they're too large for me, we assume that they're also too large for God or that he is too uncaring to complete them. And we forget that we serve a God who is driven by compassion for weary crowds. Even when he was initially seeking rest for himself and his friends, he gets up and he meets them. And I think it should really be a great encouragement to us because God needs so little faith to work with. Like he does not need great showings of miraculous power from us necessarily. He needs us to just answer the one step that we know that he is asking us to take. He can yield major results from the smallest times that we choose to yield ourselves to him. I mean, like think about the disciples when they were called out. Just a, just a little bit ago, they've gone into the world with this miraculous power, power that, that we don't really you know, profess to have on a, on a day-to-day basis. And what did they know about Jesus at the time? They don't know he's really the son of God. That's, that's gonna come later, and even still, they've gotta flesh that out. They don't know what that means when he's the Messiah. They think it's gonna mean different things than it actually ends up meaning. Um, they really don't know what his purpose on the world is, They don't know exactly how he's gonna inhabit that role. They don't know that he's gonna die and be resurrected because even when Jesus tells them that later, they try to convince him otherwise. They try to tell him he's wrong. So they don't know all of these things that are the true parts of the, the real living gospel that we believe in. What do they know? They were able to heal and cast out demons based off of a Salvation narrative that at its most basic level is this. I know a man, and let me tell you, I've seen him do some amazing things. And I think it's in your best interest to know him too. That's what they know. I don't know much. I know I have been walking with Christ and I know I've seen what he's done. So I can tell you what he's done. It is such a simple message one that we're so often afraid of, but it's, but it's still true. It's still an early gospel proclamation. And that message is gonna get more developed as the disciples gain a truer and more accurate picture of all that Jesus is. But if we wait until we have a full and completely accurate picture of Christ before we're able to serve him, before we're able to proclaim him to the world, we're gonna be in trouble because we'll still be learning about the depths of the Lord's mercy and goodness in 10,000 years 
and eternity ever after, and it's always going to be further up and further in. The Lord will always be more than we know, and we will keep learning about his goodness and his mercies day after day after day. So what do you know today about what he has done for you? What has he done for you up until now that you're able to proclaim to a world that is so weary with bad answers that it's ready to fall over? What are answers that only Jesus can provide that world? Your straining will never be enough. You need to rest. You will never be good enough, but God is good enough. There is somebody who loves you and wills the best for you, and I just want you to know who he is. One great thing from this text that we see, we are inheritors of a rich salvation, we in this room. And we have been brought to a table that was not as available to us as it was before. Jesus' prior ministry before this passage, you remember, to the bleeding woman, to the dead girl. All of those were ministries, those were ministries to Gentiles, specifically dealing with unclean things, blood, death. What made them clean was their belief that Jesus would heal them. They were made clean by their faith in Christ that he would come and he would do a work. In Jewish practice, shaking the dust off your feet when you left a Gentile city was to show that you were now separating yourself for the uncleanness that was in that city, that you were now drawing the line, we are moving, we are now, in, we are now clean again. But at this point in salvation, cleanness and uncleanness is not derived by our ceremonial practices, by our reception, but by our reception of the faith and the message of Jesus. The villages were made clean by if they believed Christ was doing what the disciples said he was doing. So now, a transition is happening, and our separation from God is no longer based upon our status as an insider or an outsider of a given faith tradition. There aren't people who have secret access to God because of their intelligence or their birthright or their wealth, their winsomeness, their talents. Our past history of being unclean and our past life of sin and death can be absolved in one moment by receiving the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done. If you haven't, we would implore you, think about what he has done. There are people in this room that have responded to that call. Every believer in this room has responded to that call. The Lord has done a work. And no matter what our depths of sin were, you know, even, and even if you think that, oh I, oh, I didn't have that much sin. I was okay. I don't need that much of a savior. I just need a push in the right direction. I'd implore you to repent of your belief that for some reason that you are more satisfied, you satisfy God better than other people. Because the chasm between you and the Lord, apart from the death and resurrection of Christ and the faith that he gives you, is impassable. It is not a push in the right direction. It is the saving faith of God who comes for you. We can spur that same message onward and remember what God has done in our own lives. And Peter, I want to end, he sums this up well. He says this in his letter. First Peter chapter one, 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. For you are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief and various trials, so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which, though perishable, is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though, you, though not seeing him now, you believe in him. And you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we, like the disciples, are wholly inadequate to do your work in our own strength. And woe to us if we think that we are. Let us plunder the depths of the riches of your word so that we can know you as well as we can, but never let us think or make the mistake that our knowledge of you coming from the Bible comes from something other than you and other than you bringing us along to read it. It is not a work of our own. All of our righteousness is your righteousness. We can bring you nothing that you have not given us. And once we have understood that we fall so below the standard of righteousness that you would require, let us not stay there, but remember that Christ came and that vast gap between us has now been crossed by him so that he can bring us over into your righteousness and your goodness. And I pray that we would take small acts of faith, that we would risk the slightest change in our perception or our reputation for the sake that maybe one person will hear what is true and good about you and what Christ has done. That we would not hold so tightly to ourselves, but that we would listen. And that when you say, go and feed them, we'd remember. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.